It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. My guest today is Howard Howdy Holmes, president and CEO of the Chelsea Milling Company, the makers of Jiffy Mix. Howdy started working at Chelsea Milling back in 1963 as a sophomore in high school, but left the company in 68 to pursue a boyhood dream to become a race car driver. He spent 20 years in motorsports winning regional races, the Formula Atlantic Championship, and was Rookie of the Year at the Indianapolis 500. He competed at Indy six times, qualifying in the front row in 1984. Howdy operated a motorsports marketing company and an advertising agency while authoring an award-winning book called Formula Car Technology before rejoining the family business in 1987. He then led a transformation of the then 100-year-old family business, and with the help of others, a professionally managed strategic vision was successfully introduced. Today, known for quality and value, Jiffy Mix is uniquely positioned for the 21st century. Howdy Holmes, welcome into the corner office. Well, thank you. It's, uh, it's an honor to be here, and, and I hope I can uh, you know, come up with uh, some suggestions and some personal experiences which will be helpful to others. Oh, howdy. That's fantastic. We've had a couple of conversations up till now. And as I think I mentioned when uh, we first uh, connected, uh, your name came up when my girlfriend was preparing some Jiffy Mix uh, cornbread for uh, my you know, ultimate desire and, and uh, delight. And I looked at the box and I said, the Chelsea Milling Company, this sounds like a great company. And you know, looked you up and reached out to you. And I was just so uh, flabbergasted when you decided to join us and hear your story. And you've got some such an interesting one. So let's start in the beginning. Uh, I'd love to hear about the early years. I know that your parents, of course, uh, your mother in particular, very much involved in this business and grandmother, as from what I understand. Um, tell us a little bit about your early years and what your early family life was like. Well, uh, I, I'm a big proponent of family business and or business mm. families. And there is a difference depending on uh, which word you put first. But, <laughs> um, you know, it's a it's always been the American dream to run your own uh, business. And uh, I didn't really know much different. Uh, I was born into a, uh, a family that had a history, uh, learned a great deal about it at the dinner table. And mm -hmm. I'm of the age uh, where you had to be home at six o'clock, uh, uh, period. Right. Uh, and that was how family uh in touch with one another and so right. on. So I learned a lot at the dinner table. And as you mentioned, I started to work here in the family business just kind of naturally. And as soon as I could get my driver's license and, and, uh, and I always, uh, was, um, intrigued, I guess. Uh, and I didn't, you know, I didn't, that's the way it started for me. I didn't know yeah. any different. Yeah. Right, uh, right. and, uh, as I got older, uh, I realized that, you know, there were uh, lots of other avenues to take and so on. And, mm. and um, uh, but, you know, my heart was always with Chelsea Milling Company. Yeah. yeah. Now, tell us a little bit of the deeper history. I know that uh, there's an interesting story around your, your uh, father, who was a twin, correct? And there was some oh, yeah. friends in the family. Tell us a little bit about the history of how Jiffy got started. Well, uh, you know, my grandmother uh, had... Uh, 
identical twins, and I refer to them as the boys. <laughs> and uh, when they were teenagers uh, being raised here in Chelsea, uh, the boys had a friend, uh, another, another male friend, who uh, was actually being raised by a single parent, and uh, it was the father. Right. And uh, now keep in mind, this is like 1920. Pretty unusual in those days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was. And, yeah. and I don't know the story of, of how it was just a single parent. But uh, as it turns out, the boys had invited their friend uh, to come over for lunch. And he was reluctant because mm. his dad had made him a, a bag lunch. Well, mm. uh, you know, teenagers are what they are. Uh, pretty unpredictable and of course the young man accepted the offer to come over for lunch and and my grandmother uh noticing that the young man had brought his lunch with him was more than a little curious to discover <laughs> what that what, single what, dad what, put in what, there what's in that brown bag <laughs> and knowing of course that this young man was being raised by you know his father only right, and right. uh so she waited for her opportunity to kind of take a peek in there, and when she opened it up, right on top uh, was a uh, a biscuit, which she kind of referred to as uh, looked more like a white hockey puck, and uh, <laughs> Fork, and, yeah. and that well, oh, but the interesting thing is, uh, she had this moment of tremendous compassion mm. yeah. for this young man's oh. father because right, right. in those days. Baking from scratch meant literally baking from scratch. You had right. a little soda, yeah. you had a little flour, you had a little salt, pinch of this, handful of that, spoonful of this. And and, and uh, so she knew. How yeah, much there, there's no going down to a Starbucks and getting a muffin. Right? No, absolutely <laughs> not. She knew how much time and effort uh, was necessary to make biscuits. Sure, and so she sure. had this thought, wouldn't it be great if we could invent a mix that would uh, save people time in the kitchen and be so easy even a man could do it mm. now you have to keep that in context because if in today's world if you say that somebody's <laughs> going to get mad well, uh, <laughs> so get over it right. and, and and the context is the early 20s and this you know man raising a child who was cooking from scratch and and she was just thoroughly impressed so that's what motivated her to uh to try and come up with a, a mix, and five or six years later, she did, uh, along with her husband, and they introduced the first retail prepared mix ever, uh, all-purpose Jiffy Baking Mix, was introduced in April of 1930, and honestly, you know, spawned a, a industry, and yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, Eddie Crocker and Duncan Hines and all those Would you stop swearing, please? Good. <laughs> I thought this well, was. I a, work for Procter and Gamble. I thought this was, was a not, family <laughs> podcast. You know, good heavens! So early in the game, and we're already using swear words. <laughs> yeah, we we sort of kid around here that. Uh, 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 you know the the B word is 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 not a bad word, but it it, it uh, stands for that yellow stuff that's uh, on the shelf that's from General Mills, and so you know, oh, all kidding so, aside, we 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 enjoy uh, our competition. We enjoy so. the people that you know we compete against, and uh, but you know, it, it it's healthy to have fun about stuff and Absolutely. not get too serious. Well, so it was an established business then by the time you were a teenager, right? And, and growing up, so Jiffy was was well underway by then. And dad was running the business or mom was running the business when you, when you were a kid? How, how was the power shared between the two of them? Well, the, unfortunately, there was a tragedy. And uh, mm. the, the baking mix was introduced in April of 1930. Right. Uh, and then, um, unfortunately, in 1936, uh, my grandfather... You know, was killed in a freak accident oh. out here at Chelsea Milling Company. Mm. And so at that time, 1936, in, in late fall, my grandmother uh, instantly became president. And her two sons, my father and my uncle, identical twins that I earlier referred to as the boys, they both came into the business uh, to help out. And 
they uh you know they did one heck of a job yeah uh my, my but they were they were in their teenage years they were or in their early 23 20s? years of 20, age the early 20s wow yeah, yeah and my uncle dudley had, had just finished college my father had taken a year out in his schooling to try you're going to love this one to try and invent the hydrogen engine of all things. <laughs> oh uh, my goodness. Yeah. Wow. Kind of a, you know, uh, ambitious Small little task. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Weekend project. <laughs> task. Good heavens. Uh, and, and so, um, it's interesting that the, the identical twins, uh, really were, were, were quite different, uh, in their personalities and so on. But they uh, they split up the tasks at mm. Chelsea Milling Company, uh, even though they uh, they they sometimes uh, disagreed with themselves right. uh, and being uh, um, soft with that one. Right. Uh, right. But to their um, to their credit, uh, they they made it work. And yeah. so when I you know came on the scene. Uh, uh, really 1963 at the time my father was, was president and my uncle Dudley was uh, vice president. So right. Got it. that's the way it was. And was it kind of assumed you'd always go into the family business? Huh? You know, that's a, that's a $64,000 question. <laughs> and uh, what makes that so valuable is uh, when I look back at, at my upbringing and uh, in relationship to my interest uh, in uh, or not in uh, coming to the family business, there really wasn't much discussion about it. And uh, it was, um, keep in mind that the, the, the times in the early 60s and 50s and so on, their uh, families, the, the men worked a right. lot. Yeah. Uh, and they were products, you know, they came through, uh, the 1929 and, and all of that mess. And, right, and right. so there were, and, and the women pretty much, uh, handled the household and, right. and took care of the kids. And, you know, we can say all we want about equality, but there, there are certain responsibilities, uh, in society or in families that, yeah, they change from time to time, but it was pretty distinct then. So, yes. yeah. uh, you know, I, came here because I wanted to, because I was interested in the place and uh, proud of, of being a, a family member. And, uh, and, and so, uh, plus at the same time, you know, I was a teenager and I wanted to put some frog skins in my pocket, you know? <laughs> <laughs> now, frog skins, for those of you who don't know, are, are dollar bills or, or $5 bills or $10 right. bills. And, and right. uh, but uh, you know, there, there, there was always a, a sense, honestly, uh, of pride yeah. and, and honor uh, in um, working at Chelsea Milling Company and working, uh, you know, I won't say with my dad, but at the, at the, because men didn't share much in those days. That's right. Yeah. And, yeah, and, different culture. and yeah, yeah it, it, it turns out it, when I look back is, okay, fine. So, um, you know, you, you got to learn things uh, on your own. Okay, yeah. great. That's the best way to learn things. You, yeah, you make, sure. you make mistakes yeah. and, yeah. uh, you learn from those mistakes. And, uh, and, and so sometimes uh, you have the scars to prove it. Well, you do. And, uh, <laughs> you know, that's what Vaseline's for. You, you, know? <laughs> you make exactly. you make them go away. All right. And, and, all right. So they're still internally there, but so you got to deal with it mentally. All right. So fine, deal with it. And, uh, so I, I think that, 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 uh, situation of, uh, you're on your own, yeah, uh, yeah. was okay with me. And always, uh, from parents, you get, you know, uh, principles and advice and so on. And in that context, my parents were, uh, you know, conservative people. Right. Uh, they right. were, they were fortunate. Uh, some might say privileged, but you'd never know it. Okay. What was some of the advice that you got as a kid growing up that, that you remember, you care to remember? Well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, the, the, the better advice were, were things like, um, you know, you, you have a, uh, 
uh, uh, um, how do I say this? A expectation from others, right. and it's often not realistic mm. because people kind of uh, make decisions about other people uh, prematurely. And you know, my father's probably best advice was, you know, you you have to prove yourself. And mm. uh, and so when I started here, uh, <laughs> you know, I was doing things like scrubbing graffiti off rail cars and, <laughs> and, and, and swinging from a rope in a, in a, in a flour mill, uh, storage inventory, oh trying God. to sweep the walls, you know, with this, <laughs> with this, you know, nine foot broom, one foot in a rope. It was wild. Uh, oh my gosh. And, and, and you know what? Uh, uh, it was okay with me yeah, because sure. that, uh, I had to, show and wanted to that I was capable of hard work just like anybody else right, right, and that right. you know I you had lots of choices well you had to even as as the you know owner's kid you had to probably even show more of that right oh absolutely much yeah. higher expectations particularly of those that were you know there years before you right and you know I think the assumption is with uh with other employees that uh you know, okay, what's this kid going to be like? Is right, he right. is he going to wander around like he's you know uh, owns prince, the place, the prince or something? And uh, <laughs> uh, the you know owner's son. So uh, I think that's the best way to say it. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I, the owner's son needs to sort of establish his or her own uh, sort of reputation. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and that that was instilled. In, with me and yeah. I'm the eldest of five kids. And, you know, we talked about values and principles often at, at right. dinner and, right. and, yeah. uh, and, and so they, they stuck with me. Uh, <laughs> now, did your brothers and sisters get involved in the business and are they today? Well, my brother did, uh, work there summers for a while and, mm -hmm. uh, uh, my, not so much my sisters yeah. later on in life. Uh, my brother, uh, was working here and, uh, you know, as an adult, uh, he was working here when I came back uh, from my racing career right. in 1987. He was here. Uh, also, a cousin uh, had uh, made a career of working one of, at one of Dudley's, one of Dudley's kids, Dud Dudley's yeah, yeah. Uh, son, right? Right. And he had yeah. uh, Dudley. Uh, my uncle had three children as well, uh, uh -huh. uh, two daughters and a and a son, and so you know. Maybe if we talk a little bit about family businesses as a, as a, as a individual who's kind of, you know, swept the floors and, right. and then right. came in as a, uh, as a possible successor and, uh, and now having done that, uh, there is always a, a, a tremendous amount of, um, confusion, uh, and, mm emotional drama yeah, uh, yeah. especially around succession and yeah right. uh, and the thing about family businesses is that only about 26 or 27 percent make it to the second generation which that's right yeah. should it tells us all something and, yeah. and that yeah. means 74 percent doesn't Don't. make it <laughs> yeah and, right. and right. um so <clears throat> if you can kind of figure out some of the universal problems uh you, you maybe have a chance and i i kind of look back and and have a couple of cliches that have, have sort of uh surfaced for me and one of them is that you you don't make family decisions with your head mm -hmm. and you don't make uh, business decisions with your heart and yeah, if you can't yeah. recognize the difference they're both going to be in trouble right uh, right the, the other thing is there's Counselor. generally two camps of people in, in business families or family businesses. And one camp is uh, they think that ownership equals leadership. Mm. And the other group thinks that, no, ownership is something you inherit. Leadership is something you have to earn. Mm. I happen mm. to be in that camp. Yeah, uh, yeah, and, uh, you know, those uh, it, those differences, honestly, are a paradox, which yes. which means there is no solution. Uh, right. The best you can do is kind of manage those uh, different beliefs. Yeah. And yeah. it can get pretty sticky. 
Well, you made a very important decision and we, we alluded to it in your bio and you just mentioned about your racing career. You were five years in, uh, you were in your early twenties, was 1968. Gosh. And for those of us, uh, the, those of our listeners who don't remember what was happening in the U S in 1968, it was probably one of the most tumultuous times in our society, right? With the Vietnam oh, yeah. war and everything else. And you decided to become a race car driver. Tell us a little bit about the thinking behind that. And, you know, you did it for almost 20 years and, uh, then you came back to the business, but, but give us a little bit of insight into a, how that was, uh, how did you come to that conclusion and B how that was perceived by the company, particularly your dad and your family? <laughs> well, uh, I'll maybe get to the punchline before I tell the story, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I would ask anyone who's listening, uh, if anyone believes that there's a relationship between intellectual intelligence and race car driving, please let me know. Uh, <laughs> so the, uh, the journey to racing uh, really goes back to our family uh, would go to the Indy 500 mm. every year uh, as, as, a, as a family. And, and the first one uh, that uh, I went to was 1957. I was, I was uh -huh. nine, yeah. nine years old. In those days there were, 400,000 people in the stands and, Incredible. you know, it really fond memories, uh, of, uh, it's about a four hour drive from where we live in Michigan, mm -hmm. south to Indianapolis. And we, as we got into the, uh, over the Indiana line, there was a, a, a big state park, uh, Okagan national park. We would stop there and have, <laughs> you know, you know, burnt chicken and, and, uh, <laughs> uh, deviled eggs and and so on and lunch like, on the way yeah. oh yeah like all big events um you know we we didn't stay uh in indianapolis because of yeah. Yeah, yeah everybody doubles or triples the price of hotels sure. and things right. like that so we're a conservative group we would <laughs> we would stay outside that 50 mile radius in a in a i won't name the the hotel or actually motel because it it uh, it's not fair but uh it was right next to a drive-in movie i'll just i'll just leave it at that it it, it was not the ritz it yeah, was the, yeah right. uh, it was not a four-star hotel uh, right, right. Yeah, i think it started with an m and seven h right? <laughs> yeah, it, it was but you know it was it was us that's what we did right, and right, right. so uh you know, for a number of years, we did that. And, uh, mm. uh, and you mentioned 1968, what, what triggered the, the reinterest in this boyhood dream of being a race car driver. Now, mind you, I didn't have any idea what that meant to be a race car driver. Right, right. I just observed the Indy 500. That's it for a number of years. But Michigan International Speedway was built here uh, in the Irish Hills, and they offered a uh, a private driver school one mm. year, and, and everybody within fifty or sixty miles of of that racetrack received this six color, really snazzy brochure uh, that advertised the Michigan International School of High Performance Driving, and it was they said it was going to be taught by Sterling Moss, who was a very famous. Uh, English Formula One driver. Well, turns out Sterling Moss probably had no idea where Michigan is, uh, <laughs> let alone uh, Michigan International Speedway. In any event, I uh, I signed up and and uh, I went uh, and uh, there was sort of instruction uh, in the classroom and and driving in these Formula Fords on mm. a road course and. Uh, I'll never forget the first time I got in that car it was, that was it. I mean, yeah. somehow, yeah. yeah, somehow I was going to do this. And uh, wow. honestly, what, what you mentioned. And how old were you at the time? What, what, what was that first? Uh, 68. I, I would have been, let's see, 47 to 21. 21. Yeah. 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 And uh, so you mentioned thinking, well, there wasn't any thinking involved. This, this was all just some, just some this dream. This was all heart. The, the, uh. Yeah. It, it over, it, it was in control. Right, and right. so I was in college at the time, uh, at Eastern Michigan majoring. Mm -hmm. I wanted to teach business or so I thought. And, um, you know, much to the, uh, 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 
non-delight of my parents, <laughs> I uh, withdrew from college in my senior year. Uh-huh. And I, with a, a, a very close friend of mine, built a homemade trailer, mm. uh, purchased purchased a Formula Ford, F-O-R-D, which is a, right. a small, uh, you know, early road racing car. And uh, I got the engine manual from my college bookstore, ordered a set of tools from a catalog, Auto World catalog, <laughs> for sixty nine ninety five, wow. And the guys out here at Chelsea Milling Company built me a 12 by 20-foot uh, uh, plywood garage in one of the warehouses, and I was in business. That was it. Uh, that was I had it. no more idea than a rabbit what I was doing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but you went on, you were you yeah. rookie of the year at Indianapolis 500. You you went there six times, I think, right? Is that six correct? Six times, yeah. yeah. Qualifying yeah. in the front row. And wow, what, what an amazing time. And ha- how was it the very first time? I mean, you know, as a kid of what, eight, nine years old in the stands with 400,000 people. And then for the first time when you were down on the road, that must have just been an amazing feeling. Huh? What a What a transformation. It, it was an amazing feeling, and one of yeah. the, the things that uh, I remember the most, keep in mind as a kid, you know, we would uh, we would draw names out of a hat to see mm. who was going to win and so on. So there were names like yeah. Unser, there were names like Andretti, names That's like right. John Cock, names like yeah. Foyt and stuff. Well, uh, uh, the very first day that, that I arrived at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway in 1979, uh, uh, and I went into the garage area, I should say the old garage area, the old wooden ones. Um, the first guy I see coming towards me is A.J. Foyt, oh along with his wow. uh, mechanic, Jack. Oh. And uh, you have to understand the environment in racing is all about intimidation. It's mm. all, all about confidence. And, and so nothing is, you know, uh, impossible save for tomorrow and right. uh, and, and so i uh, i put my hand out to shake aj foyt's <laughs> hand and, and i waited until he was on the ball of his feet so he <laughs> was a little bit off balance and i just kind of yeah, i'm a little guy and uh you know five foot four and, and uh, you know 135 something like that aj is let's just say larger than that and uh, <laughs> so i, I, I I pulled him a little bit off balance, and Jack, his his chief mechanic, said, uh, you know, when you get done racing cars, we want you to ride our horses. So, uh, you know, be wow. a jockey. They have some horses. So that was that was my introduction to the, you know, to this guy who, to me, was a hero. And, oh, gosh. Yeah, he was a And, yikes, all of a sudden, yeah. you know, I'm. You're uh, in it. Yeah, I'm a competitor. And, in it. Uh, so 20 so, years doing that, and and uh, what a great career. You went on to do uh, a marketing company. Now, was that while you were still racing, the motorsports marketing? No. So that you was know, I, to, me, the, to me, it was, uh, I mean, it was a full-on business. I yeah. had an advertising company. I mean, this, I wasn't on Wall Street, okay? It was, you know, but uh, I, I realized in the beginning that I was limited to uh, the mechanical part of, uh, of preparing cars and so on. Right. And, right. and so, uh, I made the decision. I, tr- I, I started that way, but, uh, a couple of years in, I realized I had to do, I had to sort of manage my career a little bit differently. And, uh, and, and so I got out of the car preparation business and went after the seeking sponsorship business, right, right, and right. Uh, and and that's what that's the way motorsports work. So that's where the money is, as they say. Well, right? that's right. And you know, I <laughs> wish it was all about talent, uh, right, but it right. it isn't. You know, like baseball or basketball or football yeah, or yeah. hockey, some of those other things. It's about it, it's a business deal, right? Sure. Sure. And so, I mean, that's where I learned business. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah. from top to bottom left or right, in and out. And you uh, wrote a book, right? Formula Car Technology. I did. And it's yeah. about one third nuts and bolts, one third right. uh, driving and one third, you know, how you how you find sponsors and stuff. And yeah. it's another example. What, 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 
what am I doing writing a book? Are you kidding me? (laughs) You know, uh, but the lesson is, you know, if you want to do something bad enough, you'll find a way. Yeah. If you really care about something deeply, you'll find a way. And uh, it, it, it doesn't matter. So, so no involvement at all with Chelsea Milling and, and Jiffy during this period of time? Were you totally out of the business? A little bit. Sometimes yeah. uh, if I you could, get the call. <laughs> well, no, I, I, if there were opportunities for me to sort of display, to promote Jiffy on, mm. on the race cars. Well, did, well, did Jiffy, yeah, did they sponsor your car? I mean, sometimes yeah. sometimes yeah. they did and, right, and other right. times not. Uh, right. But, you know, the, the, the interesting thing is that as a brand, we don't do any advertising. Right, right. And uh, so it was a little bit unusual, obviously due to my relationship with the president of of the company who happens to be my father. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, just so, just so lucky, so lucky. Uh, But from my standpoint, it was, why can't I, you know, why can't I help this company, you know, raise awareness of this brand uh, through motorsports. And uh, I, I, uh, it was convinced them and cer- certainly are now that if done right, the exposure is well worth the expenditure. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so I actually uh, years ago kind of went back and uh, did the numbers on uh, the cases sold. And uh, during the times that Jiffy was either a major or a minor sponsor, in racing and and I looked at the the case sales during there and it really was uh, they increased by a third. Really? Now, yeah. Wow. And I'm not willing, nor am I saying that it's totally because of that racing ex- uh, exposure, right. but I am right. willing to say that it certainly didn't hurt. <laughs> it certainly helped pay pay some of the expenses. Well, well you, you rejoined know, the business in '87, and you've been quoted by saying the relationship between racing teams and manufacturing are kind of like twin sisters in the sense that they're always trying to improve something with the mechanical equipment. What what did you mean by that? Well, Chelsea Milling Company uh, is, you know, we're a manufacturer. Uh, The majority of our, we make little blue and white boxes that happen to be under the brand name Jiffy. So the majority of our folks uh, are are working with machines in one way or another. On top of that, uh, we're totally, uh, vertically integrated and we we the only thing we don't do here at chelsea is we don't grow the crops right. so we store grain we mill that into mm. flour uh we do our own mixing our own packaging our own warehousing we print our own uh, boxes uh so um so there's an enormous amount of sort of mechanical equipment uh at, at our campus and what I mean by twin sisters and racing, racing's all about development, mm. right? The whole idea is to go faster, you know, every time you go on the track and that requires you're, you're, you're changing the car to meet the, the, uh, right. the, the change in that, whether it's weather, yeah. Yeah. weather or whatever the heck the situation is. Yeah. Mm. And so, uh, there was uh, that's what I mean by the twin sisters. And, and, and so you have to, learn how to get the best out of equipment you have to learn how to get the best out of people that's by far the most important but you know my experience with doing all these things in motorsports was as it turns out was a great background for coming to a family business which is you know in the manufacturing sector right sure now nobody nobody believed that you know i I, as i mentioned earlier i i was the eldest son of the president and people knew me as a race car driver and right. uh, yeah. that turns out to be uh, that I didn't say, uh, you know, MBA Harvard. I said sure. race car race driver. Car, yeah. right. And each one of those has some certain criteria yeah. that is assumed. Yeah. Uh, well, you came back to the company and I guess there was some things that were in disarray. The company was about a hundred years old at the time and you kind of had to go through a transformation with that. Was that, was that one of the reasons you came back in 87? I, I came back really. Uh, I always knew I was going to come back, yeah. but I just didn't know when. Right. Uh, and uh, I really planned a uh, a five had a five year exit plan from nineteen eighty three through eighty eight okay. to because I 
I, if you're fortunate enough to do something that you love to do, it's kind of hard to stop it. Yeah. And uh, I mentioned earlier the difference between the heart and the head, and and I had to separate those two things and right. Right. and be absolutely certain that when I left racing, it was something I loved to do. Going back to another thing I love to do, but in a totally different world, yeah. I had to be I had to be absolutely certain that I was doing the right thing and that I uh, there was no unfinished business in the motorsports because I knew there was a, a, a whole new set of challenges at, in the family business. And you were right there. I, I went from this really, really, really fast-paced motorsports mm. world on and off the track to this hundred year old family business, which mm. moved at glacier pace. <laughs> and and, and may, maybe I'm being a little bit generous uh, on top of that. There was this, this enormous family business drama. Mm. Uh, and, and, um, the, uh, I like to speak of any business in, in three sectors, facilities, systems, and people. Right. And, when I came back in 1987, uh, it, it really kind of looked at what we were doing, and so on. I was uh, I was afraid because uh, time had marched by, and mm -hmm. we hadn't upgraded facilities or systems wow. uh, or people, for that matter. Yeah, I'm not yeah. saying the people were great and and dedicated and so on, but which is terrific. But whether you know dedicated is one thing. Learning new things yeah. and keeping keeping up with the competition is another thing. Right. So not a lot of new blood it was, coming. It in. was yeah. yeah, it was yeah. really challenging. And so now, did you did you come back as CEO president? Was Dad still in charge <laughs> then? Or <laughs> why am I laughing? He's thinking. Well, it's because uh, no, I came back and uh, as any good family business avoidance president would do <laughs> is uh, I was um, given the the tag of a vice president. Uh, my cousin was a vice president and my brother was a vice president. Mm -hmm. So there, you know, equality, always equality, equality, sure. equality. Sure. However, I acted like a CEO yeah. and, uh, cause that's what I was used to doing uh, is yeah. making all the shots and figuring out. Well, um, I think that was, uh, uh, pretty abrasive to a lot of people because mm -hmm. that's not the way things were done. And yeah. I really wanted to, to look at and change anything that needed to be changed. And that, that sort of, uh, what's the right word, sort of attitude or that sort of position was, uh, hadn't been seen by Chelsea Milling Company employees, uh, not to the degree that, uh, that I was, you know, promoting. And right. Right. so it, it, uh, and the other thing was, it was important for people to understand uh, we were fortunate enough to have a brand that was well known and mm. and respected, and and people liked our products. Uh, and uh, but there there comes a point in time where if you want that brand to remain, uh, you know, on on top, uh, yeah. you you you've got to be innovative and you've got to be creative and. Yeah. Uh, so we went through, uh, a mess quite frankly, and, and found mm -hmm. ourselves on the, you know, the front page above the fold column one of, uh, wall street journal one day. And that was pretty embarrassing. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's, you know, it's fact, uh, and nobody likes to kind of, oh, I guess, uh, you know, do the family laundry in, in public. <laughs> uh, but you know, whatever, but you work through it. <laughs> well, and, and you know, you, t you mentioned the Jiffy Mix brand and, you know, I mentioned earlier on how I was introduced to it by my girlfriend and, you know, she told me the story. I said, well, how did you get, she goes, well, you know, as a kid growing up in the seventies with my mother and grandmother cooking in the kitchen, that's what I learned. Right. Yeah. And, you know, when you've got that kind of strong heritage, what, what, what do you think's kept that alive? What's, what's really made the Jiffy brand just so powerful of what it is and really just establishing the, the strong culture that, uh, that exists around it. I think there are several things. Mm. One, one is that, um, we are the value player. Mm. And what I mean by that is, uh, any business, uh, tries to get an unfair advantage 
to their competition, right? Something that they can point to that the competition can't duplicate. So in our case, in our brand, we don't do any advertising. We don't do any couponing. We don't yeah. do any freestanding inserts or anything anything that's more mm. traditional. And as a result, we can offer our product for less money. In other words, the consumer mm. saves. Right, uh, right. And uh, we... Um, and you still make your industry margins or, or, or better than industry margins. Yeah. yeah. I, well, you know, it's interesting. We're, we do everything here. Uh, you know, flour milling is a, is a, uh, is a, a, a tough business. If your right. flour mills not run seven days a week, you're not going to make any money. Mm-hmm. So it, in our case, it isn't always about what's the most profitable thing to do. It's what's the right thing to do. Yeah. And the right thing to do uh, is to offer uh, the highest quality ingredients and the best price. That's what value is. Yeah. Most yeah. people out in our country live from paycheck to paycheck. That's right. And that, in terms of absolute numbers. And those folks understand that whatever amount of money is budgeted for food, that that dollar, that That's food it. dollar will go yeah. longest yeah. if eat at home and right. you know all, everybody has figured that out again with this pandemic right yes, that's with right. shelter at home and so on and restaurants being closed and yeah. and the, the the hidden um charm if you will about baking products whether it's ours or 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 others is that when you make some muffins or when you bake you're doing something for someone that's right. Or you're yeah. doing something with someone. Yeah. And it, it, you just mentioned it, you know, with your mom or your grandfather or your father or your sister or your brother. You know, that's an emotional that's right. uh, yeah, moment connection. which yeah. sticks with you forever. Yeah. And that's what generally causes what we call word of mouth advertising. Mm. Yeah. You know, you could say, oh, yeah, it was Jiffy. And, and we're... <laughs> you know, we're happy as a clam that it's Jiffy, but <laughs> behind the brand was the emotional experience. Right. And, right. and not, not to you don't people lose that. figure that out. No, you don't. Yeah. You don't lose that. That's been fantastic. Um, you'd mentioned earlier, I think it was facilities, process, and people, right? As the three different areas. Facilities, and systems, and people. Sy- yeah. Systems and people. So to, talking about the people, how do you how do you go about, you know, looking for good people? You know, how do you make bets on the people you want to invest in and, and hire them in? You know, wh- what do you look for? Well, we're a little... <laughs> We're different in many ways, and this one is, is significantly different. Mm. Uh, we really, uh, when we look for people, we hire uh, and make 70% of our hiring decision based on personality or character mm. and the, uh, not tasks, right. um, which is the common way of hiring people. Um, our belief is that um, it's far better to have people that can get along with each other, then hire the the smartest person who maybe has a personality of a rattlesnake and and <laughs> what, what, what you, you know uh, yeah. and, and we we strive for a a collaborative environment and I really everybody says that but what I mean by collaborative or what we mean by collaborative is that when somebody at work gets an idea or has a challenge, we ask them to consult somebody else, particularly outside their discipline hmm. as to how you might, how you might solve that challenge or how many might reach that challenge or, and you know what happens? People love it when somebody authentically asks, hmm. you know, your opinion. I mean, That's you right. do, right? And yeah, I do. Um, and, and so, and oftentimes you, you, you know, the obvious to someone outside the discipline is, is stark. And the reason mm-hmm. is because they don't spend all their time in that particular discipline. We're human beings. We're, we're creatures of habit. Right. So understanding that we, uh, we do a, a significant amount of um, using assessment tools such as mm-hmm. Myers-Briggs and DISCs yeah. and PF, 16PF and Berkman uh, core values right. exercises and so on. We 
we take use those tools right and and we uh we write a a, a job description um and uh, candidates uh take these personality uh or tests and uh, we have a uh, a behaviorist who mm. kind of looks at these two things never mm. sees the candidate right but interesting takes the results of the the tests compares it to the job description and and then comes up with assumptions mm. and uh and so that gives us our interviews uh, uh are significantly different i mean if if i were to say and share with you and others how we're different i would say we're different in in hiring we're different in onboarding mm. uh, we're different in personal growth and we're and we're different in conflict uh, resolution and and but we start with the hiring situation yeah. and Absolutely. uh you know it, it 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 it's these things are not absolute and it's as much a art and a science That's using right. these tools yeah, yeah. um but we've been doing it for about 29 years i'd say yeah and we fantastic. have a 92 percent success rate wow and our uh um so um and the thing is when people come to us from the outside especially people that come from um previously from large organizations right. publicly held right. organizations we know that they're used to doing things a different way, right. and and so we um, we have to recondition their thinking. Yeah, right. And, yeah. and uh, so our onboarding and the assessments. Process, I'm sure the assessments are helpful to be able to determine whether or not those people can be reconditioned. Exactly. You know, I, I use assessments in my recruiting, and I, I tell my clients it should be at least a third of your final decision. But, yeah. you know, so often you can separate the people, particularly when you're looking for move from a large corporation to a family owned business yeah. as to whether or not they can make that transmission. And, and, you know, people can be very good, but they just can't make it sometimes. Right? Well, that's exactly right. And yeah. we just yeah. assume that it's going to be difficult. And right. so, right. uh, and it is, it, it yeah. is difficult. I mean, yeah. I went through it. The reason right. we use this kind of system, as we call it, is, uh, was basically my own peer personal experience of coming from uh, a fast-paced world in motorsports right, to right. this family business yeah. and I had to reinvent myself yeah, many many times yeah. and yeah. It, throughout that process which was painful I mean very painful yeah. <laughs> I uh, you know I learned a bunch of, about yeah. uh, what it takes to uh, you, you know to, to reinvent yourself and and yeah. so uh, that system is has been sort of in, in yeah, play here for, for a really long time. We call our onboarding process a detox huh. <laughs> I love because it. it really is. And yeah, got a deacon recondition folks. Yeah. I won't bore you and go through it, but it, it, it takes, <laughs> it takes about six or seven months for people to realize wow. that they, they can actually share their ideas without yeah. fear of somebody stealing it and taking the yeah. credit for it. Wow. Uh, wow. But, what the result is, is it's the unfair advantage because we have people that care about each other. Yeah. We have people that understand that they have others, their teammates back and their teammates have their back as well. Right. And, and that is achieved by building relationships one-on-one. -on -one. That's the only way you can do it mm. with all of our folks uh, that are based on trust and respect. Yeah. And when, I'm talking about relationships. It's not, you know, hey, you know, uh, what, what, what's going on in, you know, uh, on, in the task area. Right, right. It's getting to know the other person. Yeah, that's yeah. that's how that, that's what it takes. Yeah, you building know, that trust and respect with each other. Yeah, yeah. yeah and key. people are are not comfortable with that because you know that's probably well, they're not used to it particularly in exactly corporate, big corporate businesses that's a threat to them yeah well how, howdy time has just flown by but we do have one last question we ask all our ceo guests and you know that's what kind of career and life advice you'd give to someone who perhaps has their eyes on the corner office perhaps is involved in a family business you know one second third or fourth generation and you know what would you tell them how would you kind of advise them uh, maybe you know they're 
mid-career and taking a look at, you know, all the struggles that they might have in that family <laughs> business, what, what kind of advice would you give them? Well, actually, I, I would uh, say the following and suggest the following, that any interest uh, in family business should be talked about early, uh, the earlier on, mm-hmm. the better. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you're the one that's running the business and you have uh, children, or sons or daughters, um, you don't put an expectation on them that they need to come in the family business. Mm-hmm. Let them know that, you know, whatever they want to do, you're going to support it. Right. Okay. And, and that is huge. Uh, and the other thing is that, um, you know, we're not all the same. And if, if if someone wants to do something different, uh, you've got to encourage it. The hard part, I guess, in, in family businesses is people talking objectively. And mm. that's the most difficult thing. Yeah. And, you know, if, if, if you're a president of a company, you have four children or three children or something, you don't, as a parent, want to anoint one because then you're going to lose the other two. And and the only way you can deal with that is to talk about these things openly and honestly. Uh, And that's very difficult to do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good counsel. Howdy Holmes, chief executive officer and president of Chelsea Milling Company, the makers of Jiffy Mix, world renowned. Thank you so much for sharing your journey into the corner office. Well, I appreciate it. Uh, You're easy guy to talk to and and make me feel comfortable so uh i appreciate the opportunity thank you thank you for listening to into the corner office with brant hanley we hope you enjoyed hearing our guest ceo story as much as we did if you want to hear more ceos reveal their journey into the corner office please subscribe via itunes and tell your friends and colleagues For more information about Brandt, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.